I'm Christian Walmart, and welcome to the latest edition of Calling All Stations, the podcast that keeps you up to date with all the transport issues. And with me is Mark Walker of Cogitamas. So, Mark, what have we got on the podcast today? Well, Christian, the bulk of our podcast today is taken up by an extended interview that you had with Anthony Smith, who is Chief Executive of Transport Focus, which here in the UK is responsible for a wide range of consumer representation responsibilities across a number of transport modes. But before we get to that, uh, loyal listeners will have seen from our Twitter account during the course of the week that you reached a landmark point in the production of your latest book. So would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Well, yes, I'm delighted to say that I've just finished writing my book, which is called The Liberation Line. And it's the story of how after the Normandy landings of 6th of June 1944, the railways had to be rebuilt because a combination of the French resistance and Allied bombing had destroyed the railway so that the Germans would not be able to use them to reinforce particularly uh, the, the Channel Coast, but also generally use them to uh, move troops around and equipment around. And of course, we needed them when we were going to then take those parts of France and uh, Belgium and Holland, and in fact, later Germany, back. And the railways were absolutely the key part of what's called the line of communication, the, the supply uh, route for uh, both uh, all the equipment, uh, ammunition, food, and all the rest of the supplies, as well as the troops themselves. And very oddly, Mark, what I discovered in researching this and why I kind of actually decided to do the book is nobody has told the story of the people who did this. So the Americans sent over about 50,000 uh, railway troops in, in uh, about 50 different railway battalions, largely actually oddly enough sponsored by the private rail companies at the time. We sent over about 20, 25,000 uh, members of the Royal Engineers, many also of whom had worked in the railways uh, back home. Uh, and between them, uh, these uh, really brave men kind of brought back some something like 10 or 12,000 miles of railway back into use rebuilding bridges, uh, filling up craters caused by uh, the bombing, uh, rebuilding the yards that had been destroyed and so on. And it is really a fantastic story. And I don't want to give it all away, but there is an amazing center story about how at one point, General Patton, who wants to get to Paris as quickly as possible, has broken out of what was called the lodgement, the, the bit of the Cherbourg Pen Peninsula, where the troops had actually got stuck for about a month after June the 6th. They break out of that. And then Patton, a man always in a hurry, led the Third Army and needed 30, he reckoned, or 31 uh, whole freight trains to uh, bring oil and uh, petrol and uh, diesel, whatever, to uh, Le Mans. And, in order to do this, he needed a railway to be rebuilt. And they rebuilt this railway about 135 miles long in the space of three days using 10,000 men. And again, that is just one story of uh, what I've written about. But 
but that's a, almost a book in itself because it's such a, an amazing feat to rebuild a, a destroyed railway which actually was quite a rural railway that went through uh, some very kind of uh, uh, bucolic parts of uh, Normandy um, and wasn't really intended to be so heavily used uh, by, uh, by uh, a bunch of very heavy freight trains. Anyway, they rebuilt it all. Uh, and he got his freight trains and he continued on to Paris. Um, and, uh, you know, there's countless other exciting stories in the book, which um, hopefully uh, will be published early next year. So that is the, the, the timetable, is it, to, to coincide with the 80th anniversary of the Normandy landings? Is that, is that what you're aiming for? Uh, that, that's right. I mean, I, that's June the 6th. And I hope it will be published uh, rather uh, before that. It's been published both in America uh, by uh, a company, a French company, actually called Hachette, which has taken over various American publishers, and in the UK by Atlantic Books, uh, which has published, I think, nine of my books uh, in, in the past. And um, I must say, of all the books I've written, look, I'm always enthusiastic about my books. You have to be if you've just spent nine months kind of writing a book. But of all the books I've written, I think this one is in many ways the most interesting because it tells a completely new story that nobody has uh, really heard about. It gives a new angle to uh, uh, the Second World War. There's lots of primary uh, research, which uh, I had a wonderful research in America who dug up amazing stuff, Nancy Cunningham, who, who dug up vast amounts of army documents that have never been seen. Um, and it's an amazing story. And uh, interesting, every time I talk about this book to people, um, as I do, I'm always enthusiastic, but they're much kind of more interested in the book than often when I've talked about previous books that I've been writing, because they see this as uh, something completely new that um, you know nobody uh, has really heard about. They always say, oh, really? Did that really happen? Gosh, I didn't know that, and so on. Whereas everybody's heard about you know, the Normandy landings, they've really heard about the Battle of the Bowels, and they've probably heard about General Patton, but they haven't heard this story. So what number book is this, Christian, in your canon of works? Uh, well, I've slightly lost count, but it's around 20 or 21. It depends sort of that this kind of books that are slightly rewritten and have different titles and different ISBN numbers. But let's say we're on uh, number 21. And it, it started with... Uh, really with my my book on stagecoach which uh, the company stagecoach um back in about 97 i wrote that um because uh, actually some business uh, publisher uh, approached me and asked me to write it and then uh i did the subterranean railway which is on uh, london underground and fire and steam which is on britain's railways and so on and then it it, it uh, just kind of snowballed from there and i've written a few policy books as well the our tram socialist, which is about the fact that we've never had a proper tra transport policy, um, a book on driverless cars, which um, I must say I'm quite proud of because I predicted that the whole driverless car thing was never going to happen. And we talked a lot about that uh, on this podcast. Um, and more recently, of course, I did a book on uh, uh, British Rail and a book on uh, the London railway stations, the mainline railway stations. Um, so, uh, but this is a slight departure, although I did a book called Engines of War, which is about the role of the railways in, in warfare. So it, it kind of built on that. And the way I, I kind of came across this story is rather very fortunate because 
somebody read Engines of War and then they wrote up this story about Patton and his 31 trains. Um, and by chance, they happened to quote me in this. And because they quoted me in this, I then got a, a Google alert that there was this story. And so I found out a bit more about this story. I thought, look, this is this is amazing. Well, all these troops rebuilt these railways and you know they did that in three days. And uh, you know, they sent over tens of thousands of men to rebuild railways. And and, and it kind of then snowballed uh, from there, together with a picture in Engines of War, which shows actually uh, railway wagons being hauled from the beach onto railway tracks without ever kind of touching the sand or anything. Um, and that actually intrigued my publishers said, how do they do that? And well, the book will reveal all about how they did that and how they fitted out landing craft with special rails and all that kind of stuff. So, so it is a, it is a, a, a incredible technical story as well as um you know war story and of course a railway story logistics story you know there's lots of and, and a heroic story there's lots of aspects to it so with me is uh anthony smith of uh transport focus who has uh, been there for nearly all of a quarter of a century in uh, one guise or another and uh, I thought I'd catch up with him as he is now leaving for Pastors New. And I wanted to find out, first of all, what is uh, Transport Focus? And indeed, what has it been in uh, all its uh, previous incarnations? So, Anthony, welcome to uh, Calling All Stations. And thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, Christian, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for the invite. It's Transport Focus simply is the voice of Britain's transport users. We champion the needs of the transport user today, ensure the transport user is at the centre of policy decisions and policy making for tomorrow, and increasingly trying to think a bit longer term about future transport thinking. We work across the transport modes, so we do bus outside of London, we do rail, we do the major roads that national highways run, which I think is very important to be multimodal, not just in one, one form of transport. And what we do is we absolutely base what we say on our advocacy around monitoring and gathering the evidence of the experience of all transport users using that evidence to analyze and understand the key issues using that to champion and influence policies and at the end of the day trying to improve the experience for transport users that's the purpose of the whole activity Great. So, so so and over the years it's actually changed hasn't it you you started off what was it called when you first started i started in march 1999 as the director general of the central rail users consultative <laughs> committee snappy which... name <laughs> Snappy name, snappy acronym, which really had its roots right back in the 1940s, interestingly, when transport was nationalised and the then governments thought there ought to be a sort of countervailing user voice on bus and rail. When I joined, it was rail only. Um, there was a series of regional committees which were independent and they were stitched together by the central body, which I ran. Um, that pretty much got transformed in about 2005 when we set up Passenger Focus. Uh, we took on buses in 2009, roads in 2015. So it's changed a huge amount. And I think the old organisations did really good work. They were good people. They did good work. But it was quite hard to really get the full value out of everything that was being done. So the creation of one national organisation, consumer organisation, I think has really helped focus issues. So do you uh, 
actually influence government? Is that part of your remit to, to try to get government to do certain things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the DFT, the Department for Transport, is our key stakeholder. It's even more of a key stakeholder now that the DFT holds virtually all of the purse strings for the railways and the buses and the roads. And so influencing what the department does and what the department thinks is very, very important. Interesting relationship with the department, because of course we're sponsored by them, we're funded by them, but very much at arm's length. And we have a good relationship with them. We tell them what we're doing, they don't tell us what to do, and it works. Um, presumably you must sometimes come up against uh, things that they might not like you to do. I mean, it, it's a kind of official, you're an official watchdog, but there's both official and watchdog might not entirely always fit together. They might be slightly contradictory. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a tension that we manage virtually every single day. Of course, the government's got immense pressures and immense issues which it's trying to resolve. But our job is really to be useful and try and help. And I think at the end of the day, if we're useful and relevant and constructive, it's very hard to ignore what we're saying. We could shout the whole time about this and that and how dreadful things are. But at the end of the day, you've got to sit down with these people the day afterwards and be useful. Okay, well, let's ask you a challenging question. Uh, how dreadful are things? I mean, let's start with the obvious one, maybe the railways, but my, I'd like to move on to roads as well. But how bad are they? Um, it's interesting. We, we're publishing every month a passenger satisfaction measure, which is broadly steady at the moment, and it's showing about 80% plus overall satisfaction. I think for those people that are using the railways, the experience is generally okay. Performance is very patchy, and some operators, obviously Transpennine and others, have got real particular issues. But I think we've settled into a sort of new-ish pattern of travel, which um, is all right, but the underlying performance is worrying on the railway. And I think the cost pressures, which are going to be exerted over the next few years, are going to put even more pressure on that. And given that the key driver of user satisfaction every day on the railways is reliability, given the key priorities for improvement are all based around things like reliability, ability to get a seat, etc., the importance of running a reliable railway day in, day out has never, ever been more, never been more important. I'm surprised that um, you're finding 80%. What is that historically like? Is that uh, Has that gone down in recent times? Because, boy, is there a lot of fuss about the railways? Yeah, there is a lot of fuss, but I think you have to separate the fuss and the discussions about funding and service changes and union and the strikes that have gone on i think actually rail use has pr proved to be remarkably resilient and we've seen leisure use quite buoyant um lnr is now at 110 percent of where it was pre-covid it's it's people people out there want to use rail and the the the, the leisure market i think is there's probably more potential in that still um and that is still to be tapped hopefully but, you know, the commuter market's obviously changed and business travel has changed probably forever. And the, the reality of the railway is now very different in terms of funding. And that will cause a lot of fuss. But the day-to-day -day experience, as I say, with the exception of patchy performance, and I think to a degree the way that disruption management is currently going on is, is not as good as it once was. And I think the way that disruption is handled needs a whole new fresh focus.
Oh, that's 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 interesting. Um, have you any thoughts on on how that could uh, be done? Because uh, yes, I've certainly been on trains where you just don't know what's happening. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's always been a perennial issue in a way, and it is a difficult issue because you've got an industry where the trains and the staff have to end up in the right place at the end of the day, and disruption is very it's always different every day, but. I think the, we seem to have lost a bit of the kind of focus on really getting useful information to people in the front line and empowering staff to get out there and talk to people. And maybe it's a post-COVID thing that, you know, people, we're all a bit less comfortable with facing off to each other. And maybe that's slightly what part of this is, but returning that role of the kind of sergeant major in the railway who's in charge, tells people what to do, get over there. And boy, when you see it, it's really good. I was at um, Sheffield the other day and there was a lady um, on the platform organising everything with a loud halo during a really intense bad disruption. She was brilliant. You just thought, wow, that's just the sort of person you need. We need more people like that. Uh, yes, I'm surprised that uh, you haven't mentioned fares in that because uh, I always thought that one of the things that your surveys come up with is, yes, reliability, but I thought value for money is is, is quite high up there, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's, it's, it's the second sort of perennial in a sense. Right. And as we know from previous research, the, the reason that people give the ratings they give for value for money are very much based around the basics of the service. So reliability, ability to get a seat, frequency of trains, cleanliness, all the basics of the service. And what's been interesting about the last 24 years is that the passenger needs in the railway have varied remarkably, a remarkably small amount. It's still around the delivery of the basics and anybody I talk to in the rail industry I just say if you get those basics right you are pretty much 80% there in terms of passenger satisfaction and you will get slightly better value for money ratings as well people don't like the prices going up of course they don't and at times the railways can seem eye-wateringly expensive other times it can seem remarkably cheap but it, it, that huge variation masks i think an underlying sense that railways are creeping up in terms of price yes so looking at 24 years of the railway i mean what do you think are the things that have improved and what do you think are the things that really need attention i think the it's quite clear you can see just looking around there's been a huge amount of money poured into the railways over that period and the quality of the trains the quality of the stations quality a lot of the track has improved a huge amount as it should do in return for all that money however i think what's frustrating is that we're still sitting here in 2023 talking about patchy performance and, you know the quality of the underlying asset sometimes just isn't good enough and that is frustrating there's such a lot of money gone into the railway that you would have hoped that the value for money for the taxpayer and the passenger that would have flowed out of it would have been better. And I suppose that's partly behind some of the reforms that the government is still mooting in terms of Great British Railways is trying to get better value out of the system. And I think that is still a very valid aim of reform. OK, Let, let's move on to uh, roads. Uh, um, Transport Focus only took on roads a, a few years ago, didn't it, as you mm. mentioned? Um, and and how can you have an influence on roads? Uh, I mean, you don't you don't have the same. You know, there's not a company running the, the road system or a, a single organisation. So how how do you how do you have an influence there? 
Well, we, we, we work with national highways that run most of the motorways and quite a few of the big A roads in the country. So there is actually a national organisation which we, we lock on to. Um, they own the whole set, in a sense, which is unlike the railways. So, you know, they own the road, the information systems, the inf all the kit that goes with it. So they have a huge amount of control over what happens on the roads. And I think it's a really sort of world-breaking idea that you have an organisation that represents road users in this way I, I don't think there's an, anywhere else in the world there's such a similar organization to ours doing what we do and to the government's credit and to national highways credit you know they really want to understand what their customers are saying about but national highways only run about uh, 0.5 percent of the roads or something i mean i know they, they have a lot of the traffic but they run a very small part percent of the roads no they run a small um amount of the roads in terms of the kilometers of road but a huge yeah. amount of the mileage and when you take things like freight you know the importance of the so-called strategic road network to freight is absolutely paramount and you know the, the country runs on road freight essentially you know everything arrives by road and the smooth flow of that is really, really important. And so getting better facilities for lorry drivers, getting better information, getting better notification of roadworks so the whole system runs more smoothly is really, really important to the run in the country. And that's why we were very keen to take it on. And, and how do you think it, it, it's changed over the last uh, uh, eight or so years that you've taken this on? And, and you know, again, what are, what, are, what are the issues here? I think it was interesting that before we arrived, there was very little understanding of what people wanted or needed from the road system, uh, because nobody had ever really asked people. And when we did our first piece of research, one of the things that came out was the quality of the road surface we needed improving. And right. lots of people, lots of people in the industry said, well, you can't be talking about the big roads. You must be talking about the small roads, potholes, etc." No, it's not. People hate concrete on motorways. You know, they don't like that road surface when it changes. It, it's noisy. It doesn't feel good. And people really dislike it. And concrete is a great material to make roads out of because it's extremely durable. It lasts forever. It's very good value for money, but the users don't like it. It does make a different noise, doesn't it? It, yes. it kind of whirs somehow. Yes, yeah. and people find it very stressful. And but, I think the other thing that's happened is that, you know, the, the increased investment in the road network, whether it's through the smart motorway program, which is problematic or whatever, has has increased the number of roadworks and therefore they've they've had to get much better in terms of disruption information about telling people about roadworks about running them more smoothly road worker safety has improved a huge amount and i think the quality of information and the sort of management of the road network has become more like the railways in a sense when you go into one of the national highways control centers it now feels much more like a railway signaling center you know they are <laughs> controlling the traffic with speed limits notices notifications it's much more of a managed system rather than just turn up and go and I think those changes have been very, very significant. And that, given the amount of traffic's risen at the same time, you know, keeping it flowing smoothly is a, is no mean feat. Let, let's just focus on the smart motor. We've, we've had uh, a, a couple of items on this podcast about it, and they, they elicit a lot of interest. Uh, has Transport Focus expressed a view on, on smart motorways? Yes, very much so. Yep, no, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking to users about it. And it's one of those issues that if you just if you just ask people, most people don't even notice whether or not it's a smart motorway or not. You know, it's a road. It's got a number of lanes. You use them. And people just get on with using it. 
I think once you point out, though, that there's no hard shoulder, people think, oh, right, okay, so if I stop in that lane, it's going to be quite tricky. That's slightly and, worrying in itself that they don't realise that they're on a different type of well, road. There's a whole variety of roads, fast A roads, multi-lane A roads, the motorways, you've got motorways with different types of use where the hard shoulders are used sometimes or other. So it's not surprising when people aren't schooled in this stuff. They just want to get somewhere and get somewhere, you know, in the, in the amount of time that Google tells them that it should take them to get there. So, you know, it's not surprising people aren't sweating about this. But I think smart motorways is one of those classic issues where, at the time, it was a pragmatic solution to creating more capacity on the road network. The way that it was done with all the signal gantries and information and safety systems mean that it, it is a system. It's not just the removal of the hard shoulder. It's a much more sort of complex thing than that. But the problem is, at the end of the day, no matter what you what you see in the statistics, no matter how much you explain it to people, no matter how much you talk about the safety systems, it just doesn't feel safe. And, well, and that's I mean, that's partly because they didn't install all the systems that they were supposed to. Is that not right? I think it's partly the I, do, I don't think it's anything to do with the systems. I think it's just a very gut reaction to the sense that you could be breaking down and stopping in a live lane on a road that is busy, has got lots of trucks on it, and it, it just doesn't feel safe. And I don't think any amount of statistics, any amount of explanation, any amount of safety systems would overcome that. And the the campaigns to against it and following accidents in particular were bound to get a lot of currency. And so I'm not surprised the government's taken the decision it has. But it's uh, going to leave the existing ones in place, isn't it? It is. And it's it also leaves in place all of the issues around road capacity and emissions, which... Um, were were partly being starting to be dealt with by the smart motorway program because it it does increase capacity without taking more of green England out of out of use, and the, and the flow of traffic through the um, systems where you've got managed um, you know fifty mile an hour speed limits across the lanes. Of course, it makes everything flow much more smoothly and much more efficiently, and in a way, and with, with with better emissions figures. So you've got to. You know that it doesn't get rid of some of the underlying issues which still need to be addressed about Britain's roads, which in time at some point might be addressed by some form of road use pricing. But that seems like a very, very <laughs> long way away at the moment. I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. Might take another twenty-four years. No, I, I think you're, you're. I, I disagree about that. I think it will suddenly, they'll suddenly realise that uh, you know they're they're losing so much because of electric cars or whatever, and that they're going to have to do something. But um, uh, uh, that's for the future. And then, of course, there's buses, uh, yeah. uh, Anthony, which I think is uh, maybe the the most depressing of your three big kind of areas. Yes, it's the most most vulnerable, I think. The, um, the bus industry outside London at the moment is very much being kept going in many places on government money. Um, whether that money will last or not is a very moot point. Buses carry a huge number of people. Far more people than are carried by the railways. 
Um, lots of people don't have access to a car and therefore absolutely rely on buses. And so the social and environmental issues around buses are all plain. And yes, the industry is under huge pressure. I mean, I think they've got over the recruitment problems to a degree. You know, they, they had real problems in recruiting drivers at some point. I think that's been got over. But all of the underlying costs are heading in the wrong direction in terms of fuel, um, spare parts, whatever you name it. And of course, traffic congestion in many places doesn't get any better. And the government's new approach through the bus service improvement plans, I think, is a positive one because it forges much closer relationships between the local authorities and the bus groups, I think is a positive one. But we haven't really yet been seen whether or not that can make a massive difference. You know, the money has been awarded, but it's still being spent. It's still being it's still being dug in. And, you know, the vexed issue of bus priority continues to kind of dominate at a local level. It's a brave politician that puts a bus lane in. <laughs> That's terrible in a way, isn't it? I mean, we, it should be a, a good a good idea to put a bus uh, uh, lane in. But so how how can this change? How do you see the bus industry going in the future? I mean, it's in a it's in a real crisis, isn't it? Because it's it's been kept alive by in three month or six monthly chunks, mm. and and uh, this is now due to end kind of uh, again, but in in the next couple of months, what how yeah. what, what do you see as the solution there? Oh, the solution has got to be to the government's got to help the industry return to some profitability or towards profitability. So it's more self-sufficient. I think the I think there's a strong case for continued government investment in buses right, for all sorts of reasons. And the the government's got to continue to forge those relationships between local authorities and the bus companies so that the the local authorities are empowered and in a way sort of forced to make difficult decisions about bus priority because again our research shows you know people want to see need reliable buses they want to see reliable buses it's a key part of the offering and until you get that in certain places you're not going to be able to offer an alternative to people using their cars and of course electric cars are around the corner and that it's the take up is happening. It takes the guilt out of a lot of journeys because there's nothing coming out of the tailpipe or very little coming out of the tailpipe. And I think the bus industry in some places has got a real fight on its hands over the next few years. Well, uh, maybe slightly depressing thing to end on, but uh, you know, thanks for that wonderful uh, run around of uh, all the various uh, transport modes. And uh, I wish you the best in uh, wherever the future takes you, Auntie. It's uh, been, a, a, we've had a long relationship over the years. Mm. Uh, you've always been a very good source of, of information and source of kind of batting for the uh, passenger. And I think you'll be greatly missed, but uh, thank you very much for coming on to Calling All Stations. Thank you. <laughs> So that was really interesting, Christian, and we heard a lot there about the extensive consumer representation activities of Transport Focus and the and, and the impressive work that Anthony has done over many years. What were your main takeaways from that? Well, I thought it was interesting on all the three different aspects, uh, uh, the railways, which, which obviously have been in something of a crisis. So I was very interested to hear that you know, by and large, people still kind of give them a, a positive rating, uh, despite, you know, one, one, all the media coverage about how terrible the railways are and how they're collapsing, whatever, people who actually get on the trains kind of 
mostly still have a, a, a positive experience. And that was good. I think that uh, on uh, smart motorways and, and highways and stuff, it's very interesting that you know nobody was representing uh, users of uh, the highways before and that this is something quite novel and I think they're still finding their feet over that they've only been doing it for seven or eight years uh, but that's a great innovation actually I mean in fact while Anthony Smith is there it's changed from you know the central trains users council whatever it's called to passenger focus and now transport focus I think that's you know he's it's obviously done a great job in that and they'll miss him greatly but I thought the most interesting aspect was on buses actually because that it, you know, buses are used by more people than trains every day. Um, and the cutbacks in routes, the fact that there is no long-term funding solution, there's just patchwork kind of uh, support for buses, which is running out every couple of months and then is renewed again. And there's, real no, there's really no strategy to uh, develop a, a long-term coherent plan to uh, ensure that we retain a bus network and you know there's no guarantee of that i mean there's whole swathes of the united states which have no bus network uh, at all and there's lots of other countries which have allowed their buses to to simply uh bus networks to wither away and die so that that i thought was his biggest area of concern is christian's final thought from the departure lounge uh, well, Mark, I was just listening to uh, Radio 4 the other day, and uh, I was just struck by the fact that here I was listening to, I think it was a profile of Camilla or whatever, and then it ended at five to six. And I wondered, why is it ended at five to six when I know the news is at six o'clock? And then they came on and said, well, here, uh, here's the shipping forecast. And I must say, I do wonder, you know, this kind of dates back to the time when people had wirelesses and would sit by their wireless and twiddle the knobs and kind of find the right station and listen to the shipping forecast and then presumably jump in their boats or maybe they were on their boats already and uh, get the shipping forecast. But is there not, don't you think, Mark, you know, rather different ways of getting your information about shipping these days? I mean, does anybody really wait to five to six every day and turn on to uh, the the home program which is what it used to be called um and uh, listen to the shipping forecast with bated breath about where the latest uh, gales are going to be i just and it does get in the way of programming i just think it's you know part of our uh, modernization of uh, of uh, the country that we need to do you know we need to kind of be a, a, a kind of a 21st century country and the coronation all that we would you won't go into but makes me think that we're you know something like a 19th century country so getting rid of the shipping forecast i think would uh, be a show that uh, we are uh, changing and modernizing and recognize hey there's a digital uh, age out there and we should be part of it of course i may anger traditionalists here who think that maybe the uh, shipping forecast is you know uh, goes with i don't know wearing suits and ties when you're uh, reading the news or uh, you know traveling around in kind of uh, old fashioned coaches when you're the king you know all those sort of things that 
you know, we see as part of, of tradition. So if you disagree with me, by all means, get in touch. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod.